This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with assistant coach at Forward Madison, John Pascarella. He discusses his extensive football career, which has taken him to a variety of MLS teams, the day-to-day differences between being a head coach and an assistant coach, and how he learnt the skills for these, as well as some of his own beliefs around coaching. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, John, we are good to go. I'm excited for this conversation. I know we caught up um, a week or so ago um, and what was meant to be a 15-minute catch-up just to introduce one another turned into an hour-long conversation about all things uh, football or soccer. So, yeah, John, really excited for this. But uh, most importantly, before we start, how are things your end? All good? Things are great. Things are great. Thanks for asking. And I really enjoyed that conversation as well, which is has led me to really think about this one and I'm excited to do it. So um, I will apologize straight away. Um, there's a band in the stadium here that's warming up for tonight's concert. It's Brandy Carlisle and they are doing a sound check. So they're actually playing at the moment. So if you hear music in the background, it's not my music. It's not actually any of our internal music in the offices. It really is just the stadium blaring out the tunes. Well, um, I- I think between the pair of us, you've got the music, I've got dogs going in the background, so we should have an interesting podcast. It should be all good. Perfect, perfect. Um, I guess for people that don't know you, haven't come across your work before, do you want to give us a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of, I guess, who you are and some of the trips you've had along the way, and then we'll dig into the, the details from there. Yeah, I'm, um, I've been lucky enough to be a, a professional player uh, for nine years. At the time when I started and I left college, which was at Penn State University, um, I ended up going to Peru for the first couple of years of my career because there wasn't a league here in the U.S. So I played uh, in Peru for a club called Sport Boys, which is one of the bigger teams in the first division there, and also played for Alianza Suyana. Um, From there, I came back to the U.S. I got into the USL, um, stayed there a long enough time that eventually MLS started. And by the time I was 30 years old, was able to play uh, or be involved for a year and a half in MLS with the Los Angeles Galaxy. Uh, Retired after that, started getting into work, into business in the fitness industry, and had an opportunity to jump into coaching. And initially, for maybe the first nine to 12 months, I kept saying no and kind of pushing it off. No, no, no. And eventually, I ended up taking the position, part-time position at the University of Maryland. And I realized very, very quickly uh, that I loved coaching. So my one year, let me see how this is going to work out. I'll try it out kind of thing has now turned into a professional coaching career, which I never anticipated, never really prepared for. I was also always a student of the game as a player, but hadn't done any of my licensing, hadn't gone any through any of that process. So I stayed in the college game for three years, started doing the licensing, went into the youth game as a head coach so that I could start gaining some experience and trying some different ideas and methodologies out, um, and then ended up coaching at a high school. I coached an Olympic developmental program uh, for boys at the state level, at the region one level, and then realized that as much as the kids loved it, and as much as I loved coaching them, I really missed competing at the professional level. 
So I started to now, now I'm well into 10, 12 years of youth coaching and college coaching. And I started to reconnect with my old network of guys that were in the professional game. And it took me a couple of years and a couple of interviews, but finally I got in at uh, Sporting Kansas City. I started as a high performance and goalkeeper coach. So I had a dual role there. And from there, things just kind of moved on. I went from there. Uh, I wanted, to, after eight years, won an MLS Cup, won two Open Cups. Wanted to try the head coaching thing at a higher level. So I took on a PDL team, the Des Moines Menace. Made it to the playoffs with that group. Jumped back into MLS as an assistant coach. Stayed at Minnesota United for two years. And then took the head coaching job for the OKC Energy, which is the highest level that I've been as a head coach. And that was in the USL Championship. Uh, I was fired from that job shortly thereafter, took an assistant position here with forward Madison and have been here ever since. So the the long and the short of that is I've coached in the youth game. I've coached the Olympic developmental program. I've coached in the college game. I've coached in the professional game. I've been a high performance coach. I've been a goalkeeper coach. I've been an assistant coach and a head coach. So I've done a little bit of all those things which for a guy as hyper as me, as energetic as I am, and a, and a guy who always wants to know and learn and grow, it's been an absolute wonderful journey for me to go through that. And I've been really lucky with a lot of the people that have given me the opportunities that they've given me to be able to do this for a living. Perfect. And I think with all those, all those experiences, you're probably going to be in a really good position to have a stab at my next question is, what do you think good coaching is? That's a that's a great question, actually. Um, I think it depends a little bit on the level. I think it depends on the role. Um, and I say that because there is this, this discussion that's been going on now for a few years, specialist versus generalist. And I think if you look at a head coaching role, that role, because it encompasses so, so many things, because you're a father figure, because you're a leader, because you're the local priest or rabbi, because you have all of these different pieces, you have to have a little bit of information and be able to deal with people psychologically. You have to know what makes them tick. You have to be able to deal with the emotional aspect of it. You have to have your craft knowledge around your football. Um, you have to have a lot of empathy uh, for people, and you've got to be able to build relationships with people. Now, the reason why I say it's different depending on the role is if I was in a in a high performance role or if I was the goalkeeping coach, I may be more of a specialist in those roles. Yes, I may at sometimes be the father figure or a leader in, in some way, shape or form, but it's following someone else's lead that's the head of the staff, the manager's lead, um, and you're specializing or working in a specialty area for that person. So it really depends. But I think one of the biggest things is knowledge in a lot of areas regarding life in general. I think it has to do with communication skills and being able to build relationships. I think you've got to be very empathetic and, and be able to be a good listener and communicator with people so that you can understand what they're going through, because that will have an effect on them on the field. Things that are happening in people's personal lives have a major impact on what's going on day to day in the training environment. And so obviously you've been in a position where you've been head coach, you've been a goalkeeper coach, performance coach, assistant coach, et cetera. How does 
the role that you're undertaking change the way that you act as a practitioner? So if you look at it now where you're an assistant coach, you're going to have different level of responsibility to that when you're a head coach. Is there any discernible difference that you can notice? Is there anything that particularly stands out to say I have to act in a certain way? Or is that, again, context specific? I think it's context specific, but you do have to act a certain way. And and for example, my role now is as an, is as an assistant coach, but I come to it with a different knowledge and understanding and experience now that I've been a head coach a couple times in my life, because I have a better idea of what the manager, what the head coach needs from me. And I know that in my role today, the important thing is that I look under every stone and I give him every bit of information I can. I give him my perspective so that he then has all of the information to make the final decision with. But that's where the biggest difference is between my role and my my previous role to this one. As the head coach, I was the guy looking for input from everyone else and ultimately having to make the decision. In this role, I'm not the decision maker, but I have to make sure that I am responsible for my piece of it in giving him all the information that I can so he has the broadest canvas in which to paint with and have a better idea of what he has to choose from. So it, it is a little context specific. It is role specific. Um, and it's really fun kind of, of jumping between these different types of roles and how you move from one to another and take all of these experiences with you. As I said, I feel like I'm much better today as an assistant coach than I was for Peter Vermees at Sporting Kansas City or for Adrian Heath at Minnesota United, because I have a perspective now on what they were seeing when before, when I was working for them, I only had one year as a head coach before I worked for Adrian in Minnesota. And I'd had no experience at the professional level as a head coach. I had it at the youth level, but not at the professional level when I was working for Peter Vermees in Kansas City. So it's different. You grow with it. Um, it is context specific. It is role specific. Um, and very interesting and different from club to club and manager to manager and staff to staff. And how do you get clarity on what um, what stones to unturn? Because I can imagine as an assistant coach, it would be really easy to go and dive into a load of different areas where you know the head coach might not be particularly interested or he might not want you to go down that route. I, I think something like... Uh, set pieces for example you might come with a load of good ideas around set pieces and he might but listen I don't want you to focus on that right now I want you to go down this area how do you get clarity on on you know I guess the scope of your job and understanding what solutions are within the scope of your job and what areas that actually that's someone else's responsibility and you know they're that that's their part of the jigsaw that I'm going to leave them with you have to be willing to ask the questions You've got to turn around and say, what is it that you need from me? What are the areas that you either don't want to deal with or areas that you don't feel very comfortable with? And of those areas, what do you want me to handle? And you've got to be willing to ask those questions and you have to be willing to go with their answers because there may be things you, br you brought up the example of set pieces. Um, I might have certain ideas on set pieces. But our manager has been a set piece coach and been in charge of set pieces when he was with Real Salt Lake. So he knows that piece of the game really well. So with time, I had to ask the question, is there any input on this that you want? Or do you want me to bypass that, leave you be with what you have 
and use my time and energy better in another area. So you've got to be willing to ask the questions. You've got to be willing to have a dialogue. And that takes time because you don't build that in the first week. You don't find that out in the first week. You grow through that together as a staff. Um, and the interesting thing about that is as you're growing through it, there's not a lot of time, or I should say there's there's so little time because of the schedule and how compacted it is with games and training that you really have to do that and learn those things very quickly and under stress and be able to accept it very quickly and go on and do the things that you're good at, do the things that they need, ignore the things or bypass the things that they don't want you to handle and you just grow as a group that way. And I think we're much better at it today, 18 months in as a staff here in, in Madison, than we were the first 18 weeks that we were together because we've grown through those conversations and the dialogue. And yeah, th this probably brings a really nice point. I think you, you've mentioned a lot of stops on your journey and from the conversation we'd had previously, one thing I think which has been incredible for you is you've had an opportunity to work with a lot of different people and rather than kind of going down with one person, you know, we have it quite a lot in the UK where people will take staff and, you know, it doesn't matter if you're at Rotherham or Leeds or Man United, those staff members will follow that coach round. And I understand the rationale behind it, but it probably mm -hmm. keeps you in a bubble. For you, you've obviously had exposure to a lot of different coaches. How do you do your homework around the coaches you're going to be working with because obviously what you don't want to do is going into an environment where you fundamentally disagree with the mm -hmm. style of play or the what the mannerisms of them as a coach or their belief of you know periodization or whatever that could be so how do you actually do your homework to understand if that's actually going to be a fit for you it, it's it's really communicating and talking with your network because if you haven't worked with someone in the past, you may know them just from passing and having competed against each other, either on the field as a player or as a coach. Um, but really, you depend on the people that you trust to give you feedback on that person that you may be going to work for. And you rely on those things that they tell you. And for me, many of those things don't have to do with the football side of it. It has more to do with the character side of it. It has more to do with open mindset versus um, a fixed mindset, a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Because I would prefer to be working with a staff where we were very open about ways of doing things, that we were open to change. Yes, you want to find things that are very successful for you and you want to stick to those things, but you also want to continue. I also want to continue, I should say. I also want to continue to grow and to learn new things. So for me, moving from staff to staff has been a great benefit to me. And I want to be around other like-minded people who believe that that is important to them. Now, that doesn't mean that's the right way to do it, because I can, again, give you perfect examples. At Minnesota United, compared to most of my other stops, it was a brief stop. It was only for two seasons. But it was because Adrian, who has been very successful wherever he has been, has a very fixed way of doing things. And he wasn't about to change. And it's not that he wouldn't take advice, but we were kind of locked into a way of doing it. And there was not a lot of varying from that. And that got to be a little stagnant and boring after two seasons. And so I thought, OK, I've picked up what I can here. It's time to move on. Whereas, for example, when I was with Peter for eight years, Peter Vermees for eight years in Sporting Kansas City, 
he was constantly evolving and constantly changing. And although his system of play may have been the same, it evolved in the way we did it, in the way that we taught it, the type of players and roles and profiles that we looked for in certain positions. Um, he tried to evolve the culture and grow the culture. And so that for me was very stimulating and why I stayed there for so long. So for me, that's when I look to research, just as they're researching me as an assistant coach to see what I can offer them, I'm doing the same thing to see how open-minded they are to take on ideas and to, and to debate different topics. I may have a perspective and give that to my boss. And he may not take that perspective, but that's fine because it's his head that's on the chopping block. He has to make the ultimate decision. But I really would prefer to work with somebody that would at least consider that information, take it in and then decide if he wants to use it, not use it. So for me, that's a big piece of what I'm looking for when I'm trying to find out if that's a place I want to be, if that's a place where I will fit. Right. So I'm going to go back to something you said there. I believe it was the Kansas City stop where you mentioned about the way that we taught over that eight year period mm -hmm. and it changing. Something that probably fascinates me, and this is just a perception that I have and I could be completely wrong, is Alex Ferguson's tenor at Man United. He seemed to have a lot of different assistant managers during that period. Mm -hmm. And my belief without ever speaking to him is that that was the ability to have a change of voice to still have his principles of what he wanted Man United to be and how he wanted them to play but a different voice and a different way of getting that information across and the different training sessions and just being able to keep the spark alive for the players so that it's not Groundhog Day in short how did you do that? So that's eight seasons within that team. How did you change and adapt the way that you taught the players to keep that, you know, spark within the coaching staff and, and the players alive? Because I'm looking at you there and I could see how excited you were even just talking about that eight years. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting. First of all, you said from observing from the outside that you thought that this is how Ferguson did it and why he did that. We had the ability in Kansas City to host them for 10 days. So they came in, they did part of their preseason there, and we played them at the end of it at Arrowhead Stadium. 70,000 people in the crowd. It was a phenomenal experience. We actually won the match two to one. But we were in the middle of our season and in good form, and they were at the very beginning of their season. Um, but I asked him that question. Why different assistant managers? Why different coaches? Why different high-performance people? I think at the time it was Strudwick that was there. Why all these different influences? He had Rennie Mullenstein as an influence. He had uh, McLaren as an influence. He had Kiroche as an influence. He had Archie Knox early days. Um, and he said the reason for some of those changes is because those people had grown and wanted to move on. But also he wanted to continue to grow and get different perspectives and to be able to keep up with the modern times of the game. So how did we do that in Kansas City? We didn't change the staff around, and that wasn't my choice. That was Peter's choice. But we went out and we studied what other people were doing. We went out and made sure that we were trying to stay on the cutting edge. So I ended up taking my UEFA uh, coaching license. And part of that was planned through our, our experience at Kansas City to grow and to learn so that I could bring back some no new ideas because all of us had gotten our licenses through the U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, Peter went and visited Barcelona 
because during his time as a player, he had played with Tito uh, Villanueva, who's now passed away and had been an assistant at Barcelona. And so Peter had access to what they were doing there. And so it, all of the coaches, um, Zoran Savic, one of our assistants who's Serbian, has a, a very close friend that is now involved with the Federation in Croatia, but at the time was with, I think, Dinamo Zagreb. So he went over there, studied what they were doing from the academy all the way through to the first team and look at their vertical integration and how they did that. And so we started bringing these outside influences home to Kansas City and discussing them and talking about them. And we took pieces that we felt were authentic to us. And when I say authentic, it was you'd see the smiles on guys' faces, just like when you said you could see it online and the energy. When you saw the room light up, it was obvious, like, that's an idea we like. Let's see if we can implement that. Will that work here in the U.S.? Will that not only work here in the U.S., will it work in particular in this context at our club? So we grew because we were willing to have that growth mindset. And that goes back to the question you asked earlier. That's why it's so important to me, because you don't want to grow stagnant in this game. You don't want to become stagnant. You want to continue to build and grow and evolve so that you can stay current with the game. We keep getting older as coaches. When I started doing this, I was in my early 40s. Um, I'm now 57, but the players are all still the same age that when I started coaching at 40. So I'm a 40-year-old coaching 20-year-olds. Now I'm a 45-year-old coaching 20-year-olds. Now I'm a 50-year-old coaching 20-year-olds. Now I'm a 57-year-old coaching 20-year-olds and some 30-year-olds, but, but you get the idea. We're getting further and further away from them so, yes, we might come to it with greater life experiences, but we also have to use the experiences in football and in life to be able to help grow our club so that those 20-year-olds don't remain stagnant and that we don't remain stagnant and fall behind the times. So they can still relate to us and we can still relate to them. And so I've been on some of those study visits similar, uh, similar to what you've described there. What type of questions would you ask to get those nuggets? Because I can imagine it's really easy to turn up to a training ground and go and watch a session, introduce yourself to a few people or vice versa, have a really generic conversation about coaching and what they do, what their week looks like, and then thanks for everything, see you later. Mm -hmm. But obviously the nuggets come from asking the right questions and digging mm -hmm. into the right bits of detail. Was there preconceptions of what you wanted from the trip or was it kind of you got a feel for what you while you were there and then thought, right, these are the type of questions that will allow us to get some detail? Yeah, I can only speak for me when I answer this question. Um, and, and I'll bring back the example of Alex Ferguson. When they were training, I first of all helped create the opportunity that, hey, Sir Alex, we are playing at the end of the week, but I'd love to grow from this experience. If you don't mind, I'd love to be able to watch your training sessions. And he was very open to that. And what I did when I went to those sessions was I just kept an open mind. Let me see what they're doing. And whatever catches my eye, he seems like a, a guy I can ask a question or two each day, and he's going to be willing to answer it. So, for example, the first couple of days I'm there and I'm watching and there's a few things I'm picking up. But by the third or fourth day, I noticed he stood very much in the background while everybody else did the coaching. And so come the fourth or fifth day, I said, I've noticed 
that you'll occasionally have a quiet conversation with Ryan Giggs, or you will occasionally pull Berbatov to the side and say something, but you're very quiet and in the background. What is it that you're doing? What is going through your head in those moments? And he said, he said, John, it's, it's an interesting question, but I'll tell you, I pretty much have my lineup picked for the weekend's game. And what I've been watching the last three or four days is, am I playing Giggsy or am I playing Skulls? Those are the two guys I'm looking at to see their demeanor, their work ethic, and their understanding, because the rest of it I've already put together in my head. And now I can sit back and I can look at the two of them in the minutia within the big context and see, do I want him on that day or do I want him on that day? Is that one going to start? and Is that one going to be a reserve? And so I, I've always tried to take that mentality everywhere I went. I've tried to stay in the moment of the club and not allow it to be generic. See what happens in the session. Is there a disagreement between players? Is there a demeanor change by the manager that then causes something to change in the training? And then I will ask those very personal questions. And sometimes they will say to you, you know what, that's off base. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna answer that. But nine out of ten times, they'll answer those questions. And for me, that's where the real nuggets lie. Because the exercises are the exercises are the exercises. We've all seen the 4v4 plus threes. We've all played different, you know, high pressing games. We've all played different types of four goal games. Or if you get it into that channel and you're able to switch play and you score, it counts as two. Like all these different games and things we do, most of the coaches have these ideas already. But why are they doing this particular exercise in this particular moment using those particular players on that part of the field? Or what happened in the middle of that exercise that you stopped it and you had to go at three guys? Why was that? Is that something that happened today? Or is that something that's been lingering for the last three months? And again, sometimes they don't want to answer it because it's a very private thing within the club. Sometimes, and I, I have found more often, if you ask those questions, they're more than happy to explain it to you. Because they know that you're going to take that information and you're pretty much going to use it for yourself and your own knowledge. You're not going to go write something in the press about it. So it's originally building up the trust to be able to get in there and then just staying open to everything that happens and the things that pique your interest in those moments. Those are the things that, that you should be asking about. Or, or for me, that's that's the way I've always felt about it. And those are the things I ask about. And they're very personal questions. And sometimes they go, nah, nah, not talking about that. But most of the time, that's that's where you find a lot of the gold. I think, as you said, risking being willing to ask those personal questions uh, is one that you know is useful because it's it, again it's going to allow you to probably delve into some deeper stuff rather than it being surface level. Yeah. Outside what's of that, the worst, what's the worst that could happen? They'll say no. Yeah. I mean, you're really risking nothing. I mean, maybe they say, okay, we prefer you don't come back tomorrow. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. But otherwise, what are you really risking? The fact that they could tell you no, it's. It, for, for me, it's a it's an easy question, you know, and if you keep yourself open to those possibilities, there's amazing things you can find out from people, amazing things people are willing to talk about. And you you mentioned there around the, the, the Ferguson stuff. Is there anything outside of that experience that really resonated with you as either a person or a practitioner the way you came away going, I'm really surprised that's happened in a context or actually 
the way that coach has dealt with that situation or the way that he's spoke to that player, that is something that will stay with me and I, I'd love to be able to replicate. His his perspective on taking a, gr- a broader view of what was happening um, and he and he he delved into a story about it because it was Archie Knox that first told him to do it that way. Ferguson in his early days used to take all of training from start to finish. And Archie said to him one day, you know, I'm going to leave. I don't I don't see why I'm here. And Ferguson said, what do you mean? You're my right hand guy. I, I rely on, you know, on you for so many different things. And Archie Knox's response was, you don't really rely on me for anything. You should be doing nothing other than taking in the big picture and let me deal with this little minutia. And so when he explained that to me in that kind of detail after that session and after asking that question, I realized when I get these opportunities to be a head coach and if I feel like I have good staff underneath me, then I'm going to really think about taking this broader perspective. Let them do their thing. Let them contribute to the group. And I can stand a little further back and take in the big picture and get a feel for the mood, see who's doing what, um, which interactions are working, which interactions aren't working, and taking that broader perspective on the group and not just the exercise at that moment. So that that's something that I took from him that I, I've tried to apply really almost anywhere I've been, but especially as a head coach. Uh, that makes complete sense. And as you said, if you hire good people, then hopefully that should allow you to, to the sessions will take care of themselves, but you'll be able to get that, that dropout or fallout information that could be missed if you're right in it. And, you know, I think coaches, well, you, you go on a coaching course and you always see bits of detail that the person delivering doesn't realize. And it, and you then go back to your club and you never actually just step away for a period and go, you know what, I'm just going to watch the players. I'm going to let them deal with the session. I'm just going to watch. And you do have to wonder sometimes why, because you learn on coaching courses, how much information you can get from it being a dropout bit. But then when you're in the club, you feel like you have to be hands-on and um, constantly, yeah, I guess constantly um, be, be at one with everything. Yeah. But I think that broader perspective really gives you a better picture of what's going on with players. Because if you're if you're so close to the action, it's like a referee. He gets too close to the action, and it's difficult for him to discern what's going on exactly. But if he was 10 yards further away, it's easier to see angles. It's easier to see intent. It's easier to see certain things. For a manager who can sit back and look at the big picture, you can sometimes clue into the little things that have nothing to do with training. But you can look at the player and go, something's off with him. And now it's just a matter of bumping into him in the hallway and say, hey, I've noticed the last couple of days you kind of haven't been yourself. Is everything okay? And this is where you find out, well, the kid's been sick. They had to have him in the hospital one night for four hours for testing. It's turned out he's fine. But the the wife is very nervous at home. They'd had one night, a, a sleepless night the night before. And you start to recognize these things because you have that broader perspective. So it's, um, I think it's interesting to, to talk about and to discuss and the best coaches in the world that I have had an opportunity to see work or to speak with have all had that type of broader view 
And I think part of it comes back to what you said early in, in this podcast. They travel together from team to team. So there's so much trust and understanding built up within them that the assistant coaches know exactly what to do. They know exactly how to run a session. It fits exactly what the manager wants and what he's looking for out of the session. And now the manager can sit back because he has total faith in the people that work underneath him and he can see that broader picture. But again, that takes time to build. Yeah. And again, I understand uh, probably something I didn't understand as much when I was younger, but I understand why now people, you know, if your head is on the chopping block, you want people you can trust and have worked with and they know how you want things done and vice versa. I guess the one that drives me a little bit insane is when they, the, the same person or same manager with same group of staff fail at one place, then get another opportunity, then get another opportunity, then get another opportunity. It's like, well, if it keeps failing, there's probably a reason for that. So maybe something needs to change, as Einstein would say. Yep. But, um, I, I'd be curious to ask you, because you must go through this similar type of scenario in the role that you're in. You must have to evaluate your coaches coaching their teams. So your perspective is one of kind of standing back and watching that interaction. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. And it's been a really interesting viewpoint for me because I think the – the biggest learning I've taken away this from probably the last 18 months or so where I've been more of a coach development focus alongside coaching is everyone has their own way of doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's actually figuring out what are your non-negotiables of what you want to see in a session or characteristics you want to see from a coach and what are the things that you're going to allow a coach to express themselves with and help the players along their journey because then we've got different coaches so if you've got one coach that's maybe a little bit more stern compared to another one who's a little bit more jovial compared to another one that's very analytical if I dole them all down and make them into the medium then actually that doesn't that doesn't give the kids a wide range and spectrum of experience whereas Mm -hmm. if I say to them these are the behaviors I have to see so, you know, from things These are like non-negotiables. Yeah, here are non-negotiables. But within that, I'm going to allow you some flexibility of how you design a session. So if it's a 1v1, if one of you wants to do very strict 1v1, 2v2, where another one wants to have multiple transitions in that practice, that's fine because that's your character coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yeah, as I said, it, it's been really interesting of figuring out what non-negotiables look like and then being really comfortable in your head going, I probably wouldn't do it that way, but that's okay because the kids mm-hmm. are still learning and developing from that. Yeah. 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 It's, it's the difference between the what and the how, you know, you sit back as a coach and you watch your players and there's certain things, certain non-negotiables, certain what's certain principles that you want out there, but how those players or how your current team does those things the how of the what is different from player to player and from team to team, from group to group. Yes. You want to be able to penetrate in behind the opposition's back line, but one team does it differently than the next team. And sometimes the only way to view that perspective is from sitting back watching it. And I was just curious your perspective on it from the coaching development point of view. And it sounds like it's, it's exactly the same. The coaches have certain non-negotiables that have to be there but how they do some of those things, not the what's, but how they achieve some of those things can be different based on their personality and their experience. And I think once you've got a staff, particularly at the older age groups where you've got multiple staff members around one group, 
the strength of having people that work in slightly different ways is you're going to get to more members of the group because not all of them are going to resonate with me the same way they would with another coach. And actually the way I look at it, when I have a group at the start of the season, there'll be some kids that are going to love the way I coach. There's going to be some kids who think it's okay. And there's going to be some kids who don't like it that much. Mm. I want to have as few in the don't like it as much and that they develop, they still develop, even if they're, it's not the best coach that they've ever had. Mm-hmm. What I don't want is a load of kids that love me but don't learn anything. Or we have kids who some of them really develop, but then the ones at the bottom that don't get on with me don't develop at all that year. That's no good. So I want to mm-hmm. mitigate that group that might not think I'm the best coach that they've ever had, but actually they still learn and develop during that time. And that's kind of a, a little assessment point in my head of have I done my job in that year? Because if there's someone that doesn't necessarily love the way that I coach or love me as a person or doesn't get the way that I joke with a group or anything, but they've still learned that year, that's a pretty good sign. Yeah. And once you have more staff by having that diversity you might have a staff member next to you that resonates with those players much better and all of a sudden you're you're complementing one another and now we've got a really good staff team that can actually affect every single player in our group to allow them to flourish in the right way yeah you you just said an interesting word there complementary it's crucial within the group because the players all have different personalities and so can you, what group are you affecting? Okay, so our manager's personality fits this group of players, but maybe doesn't fit with this group of players as well. This this group is a little more stoic and he's a little bit more like that. I'm a little bit more gregarious and, and hyper and active. So maybe I have a little bit more of an influence on those four or five guys. It, it's it's interesting that whole dynamic within teams and organizations really within within any group. Yeah. And I wonder, again, I wonder how much of that is actually considered or is it, you know, I get on well with these people and I can work with them as a coach rather than going, okay, actually, if we get some people that I might work with 3% less effectively, but our relationships and how we complement one another allow us to get the best out of the players and that's only mean what we're here for. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. And I guess on that on that note, one thing I probably noticed, particularly in the US, um, in you know sports in particular, you know, NFL, is there seems to be a lot of coaching trees where mm-hmm. an individual does well, like Bill Belichick, uh, someone like that, and then assistant coaches go through that program and end up getting opportunities elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I would say, in my opinion, within football, that hasn't been as prominent, mm-hmm. um, but is beginning to take place. You look at someone like Mikel Arteta, who's gone from being on the staff at Man City to go to Arsenal. The the guy who's just taken over Leicester was the same. And, mm-hmm. you know, what? there seems to be a, a few more assistant managers going in there. Yes, the question for you, having been in a lot of those environments, how do those assistant coaches prepare themselves ready to be a head coach? Because we've gone through and said how different the challenges and whatnot are. So actually, how do they go around developing and learning the skills that make them ready that when that opportunity arises, they're ready for it? And obviously, you would have been through that that situation. So was there any particular way that you learned skills that prepared you when you did become a head coach? 
the the two biggest ones for me and they sound very generic but they're 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 what i did was journaling and reflection and so whether it was after every session and sometimes that wasn't possible but every couple of days i would think about not only what we did because sometimes those activities weren't that important but it was the dynamics within that certain reactions of people certain situations that came up that I would make notes about and then give some thought to and really think about for 10, 15, 20 minutes as to how I would have handled that. Because believe me, if that situation came up today with me as an assistant, it's going to come up two years from now with me as a head coach. And it's going to come up two years later again with me as an assistant coach or a goalkeeping coach or a high performance coach. Similar types of situations occur. And if you reflect back on them with time, you can start to visualize those situations in your head, in your mind's eye, and you can react to them in a different way, in a better way. Um, even if that just means before reacting, learning to take a deep breath and to give some thought about what you're going to say before you say it. And so for coaches that want to prepare for the next step, I think it's important that you learn from the things that are happening in front of you. Take someone else's lessons things that are happening to them and think about them yourself and how you would handle them. Would you have handled them the same way? Would you have used the same words? Would you have used the same timing? Maybe you would have thought, Hey, you know what? I should have, he should have just left that. We could have talked about it after training when everything cools down for a little bit, because it would have been 40 minutes later. And so you, I think gain that experience, but I think it's important that you take those things that happen in your daily environment and you give some real thought to how you would solve those problems. Because if you never really think about them deeply, there's nothing you're ever going to learn from them. They're just going to happen. And as my father used to say to me when I was young, lessons keep be being repeated until they're learned. Eventually, when you learn them, there's no more lesson there. You don't even see it happening anymore because you've learned it. But then all of a sudden you forget about it again and it, something crops up again. And so you're relearning that lesson. So if it's happening to someone else that is leading the staff and you're lucky enough to be an assistant that sees that happen, you should think long and hard about that situation, how it could have been prevented, how you would have handled it, the words you would have used if you would have done things differently so that when it happens to you for the first time as a manager, it's not the very first time it's happened. It's already happened in your head and situations that you visualized and reflected on dozens of times before. And, how and it do doesn't you... catch you. And, and again, there's still going to be some unique ones that happen because every situation is different. Yeah. But there are some general principles, I think, especially in terms of remaining calm, not getting emotionally involved in certain situations, because it's usually interactions that are the things that you reflect back on and go, man, I could have handled that with him differently, or I should have handled that with him differently, or I should have waited before I discussed it in that way, or I shouldn't have used that word. I could have worked around and talked about the situation in this way. So, and how do you stress test that? Cause I imagine one of the, one of the hardest points and again, in the environments that you're working in, you know, it, it, you, you can have the reflective piece and whatnot, mm -hmm. but then when you become a head coach and you're stood in front of journalists and mm -hmm. answering questions or you've got papers hammering you for the way you've dealt with a situation or you've got 
agents ringing you up going, Jimmy wants out and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's the situation where now, where your reflection piece and your learnings are now being stressed. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to kind of, I guess, keep that calm and composure that you've spoken around and be comfortable that you're making a decision that you think is going to go in a beneficial way, I guess, for yourself and for the parties involved. But how is there ways you can practice that stress test bit? Or is that just kind of taking as many learnings as you can and then hoping for the best a little bit as you're making those decisions? I think it's that. I think it's taking as many lessons as you can. So reflecting, preparing, having an idea of, hey, I've got to speak to this agent today and it could get volatile. So what could he bring up? And talk with your staff about it to see if you can't troubleshoot some of the areas that it's going to happen. Some of the stuff that happens in the press, those are not easy things to prepare for, but you have a general idea of what they're going to ask. You know how your team is doing. You know what the hot buttons are. So you have an idea of where they're going to go. Can you sit with your staff and dialogue a little bit about it and, and have a, a little preview of it so that you now know how you're going to react? But at the end of the day, emotions are emotions. And I'd love to be able to say that that I've been able to control mine 90% of the time. I'd like to believe that maybe I can control them 70% of the time, but I'm 57. And by now, I should have been able to almost perfect controlling my emotions. But this game is so goddamn emotional sometimes that you snap for a second and then you reel it back in. But sometimes it's too late. So I don't know that you can ultimately stress test it to the max, but it's about reflecting and taking as much info from previous situations. And it's actually looking forward to and preparing for what could happen next, especially if there's situations where there are predetermined um, conversations that you're going to have, press conferences that you're going to have, meetings with the boards or, 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 or ownership. Those kind of things you can prepare for a little bit and kind of have not stock answers, but stock emotions and understand how your body language will need to be congruent with the words that you're saying so that what you're saying to them comes out as truly believable and authentic to you. So it's just, it's preparation. And, and I'd love to say you're talking to the right guy about it, but I, I think I get caught out just as much as anybody else does by some of that stuff. But I, I like what you said there, it's a preparation piece. I was fortunate this year that I did a, um, well, last season now, um, I did a, a leadership course, an internal leadership course, and we did some work with um, some former hostage negotiators. Um, yeah. And they were just discussing, you know, some of the key principles. I've listened to a book called Never Split the Difference, which my wife hates, but I love. I think is amazing, amazing again about hostage negotiation. And a lot of it does come down to what your discussion there is actually having an action plan for what's the worst case scenario that I'm about to walk into. If it's an agent phone call, what's the worst case that's going to happen here? What's best case and what's most likely? And mm -hmm. if I can plan somewhere in that scope, that then means I've got a, a ability to probably manage my emotions and feelings within that area so that I'm not getting caught out, and, you know, slamming the phone down, going, you're a disgrace to the agents everywhere, et cetera. Yeah. So I think that the preparation bit you said there is really nice. And again, it, it links back to your, your sessions, your methodologies and, you know, interactions and stuff. The more prepared you are going into those environments, the better the outcome is going to be for, for all yeah. involved. Yeah. I like the way you said it because you you've almost 
in, in kind of in summarizing what you said, you you've created these predictable parameters in which the responses are going to fall somewhere in there. And if you prepare for worst case, best case, and most likely case, you've kind of prepared along that whole spectrum of things, and you should be able to deal with most of those. And the book you brought up, Never Split the Difference, my daughter just got me that book literally 10 days ago, two weeks ago. So now I'm going to rush to read it because it sounds like it's really good read. Honestly, I'm, I don't like reading but i love that book so i'm not a big reader i love podcasts so we'll, we'll obviously catch up via whatsapp but i absolutely loved it i thought some of the principles in there were, were really interesting Good. principles so it'd be a really interesting one so i've got two questions left for you so the first okay. the first one is um obviously you've had a long distinguished career in a variety of areas is there one particular stop or one particular moment that is uh, that you're particularly proud of and why? Um, I don't know if there's, if there's one, um, I would say, and it's probably because it was, it was during my formative years as a professional coach. And this lasted now for five years, maybe six years was the, that window of time in Kansas city. Now it was an eight year window that I was there. Um, I went to work initially for one coach who six months into my first year there was fired. I was kept on board by Peter Vermees, who at the time was the technical director and ended up taking over as the manager for the club. And we weren't very good at the time. And so we had to, and that's generally what happens, right? If you're, if you're taking over a team, you're taking it over because the group wasn't very good. Um, but we looked at it as an opportunity, an opportunity to change the team a little bit, an opportunity to change the culture, to change the way the city looked at the club. And it came in the midst of a rebranding as well and the building of a new stadium and all those things. And so if there's one thing I'm really proud of in particular with that group is that we were a fairly young and inexperienced professional staff at that time that changed out the locker room to reflect what was important to us and what we valued as a culture and as a group drafted very well, bought very well. And we were not a big spending team like LA galaxy was at the time, like real salt Lake was at the time um, and put together a team over the course of the next few years that went to a conference final that and lost went to a conference final again and lost, but that same year won the Open Cup, like the FA Cup. The next year won the MLS Cup and then again won the Open Cup. And with this pretty much same group of players that we brought in ourselves and built and grew, and they weren't all the most experienced players in the world, but we put together the group that fit really well. Some experienced old hands, some young guys drafted out of college, some other young guys we picked up in the USL, a couple of internationals, and we put this group together that reflected how we felt about the game and what we wanted them to represent in terms of our club and our city. So if there's something that I look back on with a lot of pride, it's having been able to do that because we were given some room by the ownership group and some time to do that because it doesn't happen overnight, especially in MLS where there's 
salary restrictions and the way you you acquire players is very different. You're not just buying and selling all the time. Um, and I think we did a very good and thorough job uh, with that. That's what I find so interesting about the job I'm in now. We're kind of going through that process now. We took over a team that hadn't made the playoffs for a couple years in a row. We've started to rebuild it. We only kept four players from the team that we had acquired the year before. We built around those four because we felt like those four really represented who we were and what we were like. And we are starting to see uh, some growth from that. We're starting to see some progress and some success with that group. But we're only 18 months in. Love to be able to stay here another couple of years. But but that one, that particular situation in Kansas City, um, and this one, just in the sense that it seems to reflect that a little bit, even though it's a different time and place with different people. Perfect. And that is a fantastic segue to my last question, which is if I were to ask the people that you work alongside or the players you work with, how would you hope they described you in three words? Um, teacher. Positive. In terms of always looking for the good. Third word, they'd probably say hyper energetic. <laughs> Some might say I'm a hugger. I'm Italian, man. I, I hug everybody, even every morning when I see the players. Everybody gets a hug. It's not just handshakes. So um, I would hope those are three things that come to mind uh, for them very quickly. I think some of the other things, I know you asked for three words, but I would hope they would say knowledgeable and caring. But I think those kind of summarize who I'd like to be and who I think or what I think they might say about me. Perfect. As I said, it's a, it's a question that I um, I brought into the podcast after about 100 episodes. And I think it's a really nice thing for people to actually reflect on of what do you want your players to feel like? Or what do the people around you to feel like? But listen, John, a fantastic conversation. We have not touched on, I would say, about 10% of your career. So I think another one will definitely be due of these down the line. But in the meantime, uh, look after yourself. Thanks so much for your time and catch you again soon. Uh, of course, Michael, I appreciate it. I look forward to doing it again. And thank you for the time and opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.